This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Joey Zwillinger. He is the co-founder and co-CEO at Allbirds, a San Francisco-based company that specializes in making the world's most comfortable shoes and now apparel. Joey, thanks for making the time to join me today. Um, thank you for having me. And I'll add, you know, the most comfortable face mask in the world too. And that didn't used to be important, but sure is now. And I'd recommend you uh, trying one of those. So yeah, no, I, I would definitely like to try those. You know, it's funny actually with masks and I may be a little different here. It, masks kind of make me a little depressed every time I put them on. Uh, I don't know. Do you have this feeling at all when you try on masks or, or have you gotten to a point where it doesn't feel depressing to you anymore? Um, I hate them. I mean, I hate them, except like as it's gotten a little more brisk, I'm, I'm not joking. These, this mask that we made is, it's amazing. I don't want to take it off. It's not just that it's not depressing. It's like a scarf, but for your face and it's lovely. So that's the only thing that's so turned what, me around. So what, why don't you describe what it, what it looked like? Well, <clears throat> here's the cool thing. Like I, I, for those of you who don't know all birds, um, which turns out to be a lot of people. So I'm hope- hopefully meeting some people for the first time on this show. The, uh, the, the company is based on the idea that, that utilizing nature to derive amazing innovations can create wonderful products that are totally different from what you've experienced before. And we started with Merino wool shoes. Something uh, sounds like a simple concept turned out to be quite a challenging undertaking to make a great shoe out of that. But that was the first of a string of innovations that we did. We've used things like eucalyptus fibers, the residual waste from sugarcane processing, uh, and and also uh, you know vegetable oils that we've converted into these like crazy comfortable foams uh, for for shoes. And and now we just had a most uh, one of the most recent innovations. And the face mask is so cool. Like whatever, it's a small product. Hopefully it's a blip in the road because no one wants them anymore soon. Uh, but, but the, the um, it's so emblematic of what we stand for as a company. And I'll tell you why we, we just innovated um, the, we use this extract from the shell of crabs or shrimp. In our case, it was, it was crabs harvested um, sustainably uh, off the coast of, of the Northeast United States. And We've taken an extract from that waste from, from, from the crabbing industry, and we've, we've found that it creates antimicrobial and anti-odor properties for a textile. We're the first people to really bring it into the world in a yarn form, in a textile. And so now you think about, you put this face mask on, we blended that with this, with this fabric we call Trino, which is tree and merino, and we did not pay a branding agency much for that, fortunately. Uh, and, and, and tree and merino put together feels like cashmere or silk. <clears throat> and you add this antimicrobial from nature and it's this incredible innovation that feels amazing on your face. It 
stops odor from, from being created. And you don't want to wash these things every time you use them. So it's nice to have something like that. So it's really differentiated on comfort and performance. It's all derived from natural material innovation. And by the way, it's from the waste of the scrap from our t-shirt production. And so environmentally, like it's end to end thought through. And so it's great product because it's sustainable, not in spite of it. And I think people tend to think about this tension of products that if you make it sustainable, it's like, you know, it's worse or it's more expensive or it degrades faster or something. No, like I, not the case. I, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, I guess they said with beer a long time, tastes great, less filling when yeah. they came out with light beer for the first time. Exactly. When you think about products, everybody would love to have this products that are good for the planet and they also work and perform well. And I believe from your background, you're an industrial designer, industrial engineer, or at least process engineer. So you've, you've understand how to work with these materials, et cetera. What does that process look like when you're developing new things? So you, do, you, do you have a, a laboratory or a testing facility where you play around with a lot of stuff? Because I've, I've got to believe for every exciting opportunity you have for residual waste from sugarcane processing or crabs that are uh, harvested sustainably, there's probably something else that didn't work out quite as well. So what is that, how does that process work where you find new technologies or approaches to develop into products? Yeah, it, it's, it's evolved over time. Um, and we, 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 don't have, um, we don't have like a wet lab in our, in our facility. Uh, because we're working with so many different kinds of materials, but to have the equipment and the the molecular uh, the molecular knowledge and, and real scientific research happening in our four walls is is we're too small to do that. So what we've elected to do is to create this innovation ecosystem, and we work with a host of organizations that are both suppliers as well as research institutions, and then also universities where we are collecting a huge amount of innovations. <clears throat> and, and um, you know, at first, when we started this thing, we had to go hunt them down. And, and, and I can give you an example of that. It's kind of a fun one, but it's changed over time. Um, and as it's changed now, you know, for, for better or for worse, not a lot of people do this in our industry. People tend to, companies tend to take what's fast and cheap in order to get, the next style out on the shelf, discount it, move it on and drive costs down to as low as they can because they're feeling pressure because the retail industry has is, is, is been disrupted by e-commerce and the legacy brands are struggling. And so, so that has had unintended consequences of, of being pretty bad for the planet because the, 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 in the pursuit of profit and speed, you don't think about the earth so much. So we're looking under rocks that other companies are not looking under and the, the innovation ecosystem around natural materials now looks to us and they say, okay, look, there's a company that has some scale. Maybe they'll be more, um, it'll be more resonant what we're pitching. You know, it'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll be attracted to what so, we're working so, on. So it's a great, it's a great engine that it sounds like you've put together. And one thing I'm curious about when you mentioned this is how do you manage that process? Do you have somebody on your team who's in charge of investigating materials or- yeah or dealing with the inbound. So when you hear from somebody, hey, I've got this new technology using, I mean, I'm just fascinated by this residual waste from sugarcane processing or using something like that. Do you, they send you proposals? And then who is it on your team who's responsible for that, that 
operation. Yeah, I wish it was as easy as taking proposals in, sorting through, and picking the best. <laughs> we, have, we have a team. Of, we have a pretty big team of people that are out there focused on it. And I say big, that's in a relative sense for the size of company we have. But the, um, you know, that 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 team is out. Um, it, typically, they're scouring the world, conferences, material shows. Um, working with suppliers and institutions to find the next best thing and and what's what's on the cutting edge. Um, that 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 travel has slowed down, of course, given the current health crisis. But but you know it's moved virtually, and we still take it on. And then we do a ton of back and forth iterative work, like whether if we move it through a stage gate, and we try to stage gate this methodically because if you don't have a process, you can end up wasting so much time on fun science projects that have no commercial reality, and we we never want that to happen. So we we try to have things with a balance of of of, of pragmatism, and. And that requires us to go and once and do a little bit of sampling and, and ideation with it with a with an innovation partner. <clears throat> and then once it gets past a certain step, then we say, okay, we're gonna sink some resources in, we're gonna put it through maybe product development. Once it gets there, that starts to get pretty heavy and it moves into a much bigger team in our company. And then it's then it's pretty intensive. So it's got to have some real merit by that point. And I'm thinking about it from an organizational design point of view. Who runs that, and how big is that team? So we have um, we have a product team, um, and and the product team is really the upstream portion of of how we think about the flow from the spark of an idea through to commercial execution. So it's a very upstream part of that, and so product has the R part of research, and it also has um, and then it has design. And, and so that's how we, we've kind of pushed those things up to that, to that group. It also has sustainability in it. So we've, we've linked sustainability with our upstream innovation and product team so that, we, so that we connect the idea that the way we make a positive impact on the planet is with the materials that we source, which is the lion's share of the impact of any product company. So we've tried to connect all these things, purpose and, purpose and process here. And then development is actually a more operational discipline. It's still an art and it's still um, it's still a lot of engineering problem solving and even before it gets into manufacturing. Um, but before that, so that that's a separate team and we try to segment those so that we keep some space to breathe for the innovation team so that they can have the opportunity to get creative and, and you know follow down some rabbit holes just in case there's, a, there's an idea that may seem far-fetched that turns out it's pretty awesome. Like for example, turning crab shells into antimicrobial yarn. It's really amazing. And is there a company that you look to on the innovation side? So innovation in apparel, innovation for footwear that is uh, a real house for you? Or has it been somebody like Apple that's done a lot of the materials innovation, et cetera, and industrial design around hardware? So where, where, do you, where have you looked? Look for inspiration on the innovation front. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, um, so so my my previous work was actually in the chemicals industry, and and I spent I spent the better part of a decade working in renewable chemicals, um, looking at end use applications across an amazing number of industries, and and figuring out how to design molecules from uh, sustainable from sustainable organisms like algae. Um, to produce something that was better for the world and delivered performance that that synthetic chemicals from petroleum do. And, and that discipline is an incredibly capital intensive and um, 
very sophisticated and, and um, methodical innovation process. And so I got to learn that and how to work with companies who are doing that uh, and going through that process. And that's where a lot of my, my kind of the sniffer that I, that I help use for instinct on, on where to chase down opportunities comes from. And we've taken a couple people from that company uh, along with me to Allbirds. And, and then we've, we, we, so we, we, we think about that process. And then we, I think your examples are good. We look to other industries. It's really like the apples. I think Tesla is a fantastic example and what they've done in, in, in uh, you know, less filling tastes great kind of example, like you described. And, and that's, those are where we look to, I think within the, the apparel and footwear sector, we're not, um, we haven't seen the, the kind of same inspiration. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer, and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. My guest today via Zoom is Zo Joey Zwillinger. He is the co-founder and CEO at Allbirds. So it's interesting that you talk about your background working with finding source materials and repurposing them and being able to figure out like what could be the advantage, unique advantage on the innovation side. And I, I think that when people look at brands like Allbirds, they go, oh, that's such a great idea, but they don't realize how much is really behind the scenes in developing or bringing to market relevant technologies or materials, et cetera, to do this. And I'm sure this is something you thought about in the very earliest stages when you got started with Allbirds. And, and I'd love to hear about how you connected with Tim Brown, your, your co-founder, who's from New Zealand of all places. How did you come together and how did the original idea for the company get started? Yeah, um, well, rewinding to um, <clears throat> where I was at. So as I said, I was using um, microalgae to replace chemicals from, from petroleum. And, and um, we were a biotech company and my team had, had um, helped to create an engineered organism where we, we were able to replace polyurethane foams. And I had, with, in collaboration with UCSD, uh, we shaped it into a surfboard and we had a pro surfer ride this surfboard. And, <laughs> and it was Rob Machado. And, you know, I was like, this is such a great, like it, was, it wasn't a big business for us and it wouldn't have been, but I thought it was a cool PR stunt. And so we did it and, 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 and is it because they were at the university of California in San Diego, they're like, let's build a surfboard. It was helpful, but we kind of gunned this down. Like they, I think they were, they came to us with the idea of like, Hey, can you guys do this? And we're like, yeah, we can do that actually. So we started working with them <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's no coincidence. Um, and, and I can't remember where the surf competition, but Rod wrote it and it, I mean, it was so cool. And to think about like, who is like a surfer is the key and they're an environmentalist, like inherently they're sitting in the ocean with the seaweed and the animals cruising by. Yeah, riding potentially waves. part of the food chain. Yeah. And then the brands that are manufacturing surfboards wouldn't buy it because it was like 10% higher in cost. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like the, what's so obvious to me is that this consumer is willing to pay and they're willing to pay more for it. And not only- yeah, you know, yeah, It's like a Gore-Tex type thing potentially where you yeah, brand I mean, what's it's amazing, right? Like it's not even is it a, a performance advantage, um, but it's an environmental that resonates with this consumer and the brands wouldn't do it, which was just crazy to me. And so, I, and, and, and so it was this light bulb moment for me where I was like, the brands are getting in the way. Like consumers want it, 
the ingredient exists, but the brands are getting in the way. So maybe I should think about building a brand and get closer to the consumer. Yeah, no, it sounds like a perfect opportunity for more of a full stack than what people have done traditionally. You've seen Completely. this in so, industry after industry recently. Yeah, and if you can curate these materials instead of like, you know, I, I was on the ingredient side picking a horse and hoping that ingredient worked. Um, and instead of that, curating a bunch of ingredients and building that process to make differentiated products, that, that felt pretty exciting. And, and so... Um, and so around that time, fortunately, um, my wife talked to one of her best friends and, and, uh, and her best friend had happened to had launched a Kickstarter campaign of which we were supporters of because we were friends. And, and that person was Tim Brown, who's, who's my co-founder of Allbirds. And, and he, he comes from New Zealand. I think he was looking out the window and saw the 30 million sheep uh, roaming around the islands. And, and was like, hey, maybe I should make some shoes off this. And he was doing this on the side as he was a professional athlete rising to the prominence of being the captain of the New Zealand national team when they went to the World Cup in 2010. So really peak level, but instead of playing PlayStation uh, on, on his off time, he was actually designing shoes. And, and so he, he happened to take this insight and... and Oh, so he'd already been working on shoes. He had. He and he had the, this this kind of, um, I'd say, a design and consumer insight around this um, increased need for versatility in shoes to be kind of athletic, but also you know look good in the office or going out around town, and whatnot. And why would you want a giant flashy logo with a bunch of bright colors on the side of your shoe when you're doing that stuff? You probably wouldn't. So he kind of came with yeah, that. Yeah, I guess if you're a soccer player, you probably think about your feet a lot more than the well, and he's ordinary sponsored person. by these companies, and you know he saw that he saw what was happening, and that the fact that when he was sponsored, they would pay him extra to wear the bright yellow one, so it was more prominent on TV. It's like you know it doesn't have, doesn't take a genius to figure out that that they're not making shoes for the consumer, but they're just trying to sell a bunch of shoes. And and so um, this insight, you know, when he he put this Kickstarter up and was struggling a bit on the business side. And I think my wife and his wife, uh, girlfriend at the time suggested we have a chat. And so there, there you go. My, <laughs> uh, we were brought together by our wives, uh, my knight in shining armor and my so They career. set you up on a founder date. That's amazing. Like a exactly. blind founder date. Exactly. You guys are going to yeah. love each other. And, and we, you know, we, we, I, he flew out to my house in April of 2015 after we talked for a couple months. Uh, and, and, um, we spent a weekend together and my family was away. He, he flew from London where he was living at the time. And, uh, we basically just walked around the hills here in, in just north of San Francisco for three days straight. Uh, and, and, um, and wrote down what we wanted to do and left that weekend with something sketched out that looked um, not dissimilar from what we have today. And, and so it was pretty exciting. And we felt like, you know, we had a good weekend and, and that we both respected uh, our spouse, spousal choices. And so we had that proxy. So we said, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and so soon thereafter. Yeah, no, we, I mean, in we, good we marriages, started. the women are pretty, pretty good at uh, figuring that stuff out. Good judgment, man, I think. Good judgment. Well, one thing I'm, well, there's a couple of things I'm curious about coming out of that. And one is, I believe the national teams in New Zealand are the all whites, the soccer players, and then you have the all blacks, the rugby players. 
Is there any coincidence that that's the case and you're called Allbirds or was Allbirds something completely different calling it the Allbirds company? <laughs> I think it's, it's uh, somewhat coincidental, somewhat by choice. You know, we were, we were thinking about what we wanted to call the company and we knew we wanted it to relate to New Zealand as really, it, it is really the heritage of our company. And, and Tim is such a prominent um, and his entrepreneurial journey is such a prominent aspect of, of, of the inspiration for what we, what we started out with <clears throat> and what we wanted to do. And so we were kind of asking around, we're like, you know, what, what are the birds on New Zealand? And we asked a couple of Kiwis um, and obviously there's a Kiwi bird, but, but one, one gentleman's answer was, well, it was all birds. We're like, what are you talking about? And, and his point was, when man first settled, which was the Maoris in like 11 or 1200, there was no mammals on the island because it was such a remote island. It was all birds. Oh, and so okay. We it was such a nice. It's just all back. birds. Just all birds. So we thought it was such a nice nod back to the the uh, the point in time before humans came around and screwed things up, uh, and that's sort of that that um, ecological balance that we strive to help help return to. Uh, as the company. And so it nods to the heritage, it nods to the the purpose of the company. And we just thought it was a nice, a nice way to connect it. Was there a moment when you were coming up with this name and, and settled on that where somebody typed in the URL to see if it was available and how much it might cost you? Of course there was. Was it cheap? At the time, uh, I would say it was so expensive that we could not friggin' believe that we were going to do it. Um, and now <laughs> I think it was very cheap. <laughs> I, I'm guessing that's kind of code for I'll bet it cost about hundred to $200,000. No, about right, yeah, no, it was like, okay. like, I'm so frugal. You could, it was like, a, if it was a thousand dollars, I thought it was expensive, but it was like, I think we ended up paying something close to 20 and, and, um, oh. and, and, uh, that's still we had real to, coin right at that phase. Yeah. Before it means anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it, for us. It was quite a lot. I mean, we were we were really um, really tight with our with our money at that point, um, and <laughs> we had to hunt down uh, the guy who owned it. And and you know, it's the one piece of real estate we wanted, and he owned it, and he wanted to do something else with it, and so we we um, we had to pay up. Yeah, no, that's that's probably not in retrospect not so bad at all. So no. the other thing I'm curious about in the co-founding story is you have the unusual situation of being co-CEOs. I don't know if you're still co-CEOs, but you've been co-CEOs, I believe, for a long time. How did you arrive at that decision? Because that's pretty darn unusual, and and I would argue against conventional wisdom or most wisdom around startups. Yeah. Um, so we, we arrived at it, um, a couple of reasons. So there was a very pragmatic reason early on, which is, which is like, you know, if I was raising the money, um, people wanted to talk to the CEO and if we were out talking to the media and he was talking to the media, they wanted to talk to the CEO. So we're like, all right, well, for both CEOs, then we don't have to deal with like trying to double team everything. So, so, um, so that was helpful. Um, but, but the real reason that we, we chose it um, and we, we felt like we could commit to it for a long time, which we have and we still are co-CEOs, is, is that we had incredibly complementary strengths and not a, not a lot of overlap in those skill sets. 
And so we believe that if we could complement each other functionally in the business, but co-lead the culture and co-lead the business together from a <clears throat> organizational perspective, we could be stronger than we could ever be alone. And, and we, we both believe quite strongly that the notion that one person in charge is the natural and right way to do things is not is 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 born out of some fallacy of um, you know military or some other kind of history that isn't necessarily accurate. And I think the same um, number of co CEO relationships that have failed that people point to the fact that the structure was wrong is often, I think you could make the case that the single CEO structure failed, not because the single CEO was bad, but because they didn't have a partner in crime to help them along the way. And so there's also a structural disadvantage to that. So, and we believe that from the beginning and, and we've, we've built a relationship on mutual admiration, trust and respect and, and have a high dose of humility and know that we can trust and lean on the other person to guide through the strengths and check in with the other person uh, on all the key decisions. It's been such a rewarding part of this journey. So I think, I mean, I mean I've mean, i definitely seen examples over the years where people have made it work. And I think the biggest challenge that I've come across operationally is inside the organization when you have a reporting structure. So when you have a new marketing campaign that needs approved for a budget or there's a major decision about product offerings or maybe not even the biggest ones, but the ones that are the next level down where somebody that's in charge of that function needs to get sign off in the organization. Do you have certain people that report to you? And then does Tim have certain people that report yeah. to him? Or how do you handle those reporting yeah, we, relationships? We, we've organized the functional reporting lines to, to fit with the strengths that we bring to the business. And so <clears throat> Tim has uh, Tim has the product creation team and, and brand marketing reporting to him, which are, which are the areas that um, are the highest leverage for our company. And he has the most strengths. And, and the other ones report to me. And we have HR report to both of us. That's the only reporting line that reports to both of us. And, and so that's the way that we've, um, that's the way we've had it more or less from the beginning, I think. I don't think we've had, um, may have changed like one or two people around, but, um, but that's, been, that's been the way we've done it. And, and there's not always 100% clarity, um, but I don't think that's because of the co-CEO thing. I think even if you know, I was the VP of ops and he was a CEO, or something like that, some other structure, the people naturally would still gravitate to make sure I was in the room and the decision was being made. Um, and so, you know, I think organizational design sometimes is 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 um, thought of too, or given too much uh, prominence in, in the outcome, when in reality, uh, it's a little more semantics. And as long as you have like the humility to be able to live with that stuff. Yeah, and it sounds like to a large extent, being cognizant of this dynamic changes the way in which I'm sure you select and interview people to come into the team to make sure they're people that feel comfortable with this or at least can understand it. And if, if it's not working out and somebody's too political or is trying to get that, then maybe they're not the right fit to be at Alberts. Absolutely. And I think that humility that we have in our relationship has, has is one of the key tenets of our culture. And, and, and if that helps weed people out, we're completely fine with it. You know, one, one of the interesting things that we found is, is that an unintended consequence, which we never predicted, is that our as our partnership has grown stronger and stronger over the years, 
and we've, we've learned how to work with each other more effectively, we've actually had to work hard to, to build the same kind of partner-like relationships with some of our direct reports. And that you would, you would normally not have to work as hard if you were a sole CEO. Um, because those are your lieutenants, whereas we have a partnership that's a little unique. And so that's something where we're, we continue to try to work on today. And, and as we, as we um, build a, a really strong uh, uh, executive team to, to help steer us into the next chapter, using that team as more of the, the full team and expanding our partnership to, to encompass that team is, is, a, is an important next step in our journey. Earlier this year, at a very senior level on the board, you recruited Nancy Green, who joined your board of directors, 25-year GAP veteran. Uh, she was the president, or she is, I believe, currently the president and chief creative officer at Old Navy, and also six years as president, president and CEO of Athleta. Uh, how did how did you get to know her, and how did you convince her to join the board? Yeah, she uh, she's actually the CEO now of Old Navy. They just gave her the full-time job there, which is um, <clears throat> a great perspective for us to have. It's a different kind of a market, but you look at Athleta, Athleta is a vertical retailer. Uh, it's got a mix of, it started out as basically an e-commerce company, um, but really it was, a, it was a mail catalog company. And they reached, um, you know, probably something like $150 million in sales on just, on just mail catalogs. And then when, when Gap bought them and she took it over, they started building stores. And now, you know, it's a very large fleet of stores, a couple hundred, I want to say. <clears throat> and and that is the strategy that we have um, as from a distribution perspective. We want to own our own distribution and have it be a nice mix of, of brick and mortar and, and, and digital platforms. Obviously, the, the digital landscape has changed and we're doing some things different than what they've done previously. So there's that element. And then further, um, you know, Athleto is a fairly prominent member of the B Corp community. And, and Nancy in particular really believed in this stakeholder mentality of, of building a business, not just um, making money for shareholders, but also committing to the community that you work in, uh, to the employees that work for you, to the environment and to other stakeholders. And so that commitment was something that brought us together. We started talking um, uh, years ago about that shared belief and being two San Francisco companies just got together for drinks and dinner and whatnot, just to catch up on what we were seeing and how we were Do you, do you remember it. how you were originally connected to her? No idea, actually. But it's like-minded people getting yeah. introduced. One of the things that I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to is historically, and I think especially over the last 10, 15 years, there have been plenty of new apparel brands that have come along that get to about a billion to maybe three billion in value, but really breaking through that valuation to a much larger company to something like a Nike or Gap or others is increasingly, I think, challenging to do. And there's a number of reasons I've heard about it from my friends that are in the apparel industry. And one of the things that people talk about is, you know, people love the new restaurant in town. But once the new restaurant at some point has to get through the, the four or five years to where it becomes a destination where people fly in from out of town and they have to visit it, et cetera, and it makes that breakthrough. And I'm curious about how you're thinking about it. And I'm, somebody, I'm sure somebody like Nancy, who's been through this and has been in these organizations, has good advice. But how do you think about going from being kind of a, a hot young brand 
that's new and fresh to something that is enduring. And I'm guessing you'd love to build something as big as Nike or, or Gap over time. How do you think about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> an advisor that we had, um, uh, also she was, she was from, from Nike and went on to be the CEO of J. Crew and a few other stops on the way, but she, she'd given us the advice, um, her name is Jan Sanger, great, great person, also a great executive, um, that, that shoes are really hard to make, but easy to merchandise. And apparel is very easy to make, but hard to merchandise. And, and what, what we've taken from that, and I think it's very true, is that um, some of the, what you just described in the apparel industry, I think is true. And, it's, and the reason for that is that it's quite difficult to differentiate apparel. Um, because there's some blocks and silhouettes that you you grow accustomed to, and anything that goes too far afield from from you know that basic cut is is really fashion, and it's just like and those things come in of trend and they go out of trend, and it's really difficult to always be on top of the perfect trend. Um, very few companies I think can say that they've done that over a sustained period of time, and so. That I believe would be the root cause for for what you have have what you just said in terms of that inability to break through into very very large scale. Whereas in the footwear industry, the barrier to entry is quite high because it's it's very difficult to make a shoe from scratch that's different and delivers performance and quality that fits people uh, in the plethora of different foot, foot shapes that are out there in the world. And then does this that consistently across styles is incredibly difficult to do. And once you crack that, you get trust with the, with the consumer and, and extending into apparel is, is, is something that can then be done so long as you have something that you can differentiate on. And, and what we've chosen as the core of our company, as I mentioned at the top of the hour was, was that we, focus on innovation from naturally derived materials and that that unlocks differentiated feel and performance in our products. And that is something we can systematize and consistently be different. And that will allow us, we hope, to break through into, into much larger scale and prominence and importance in the world. Because we think that if we're important as a brand, we're going to be doing something good for the world. And that's, that's going to be, that's just going to be good for for society, good for us, good for the business, you know, all that. When you go into these areas of apparel and you're working with these new materials that you're talking about, how does that affect your cost structure versus a company like Gap or something like that? Do, do you have a higher cost structure, but you can also charge a higher price or how do you think about your pricing power and cost power? Yeah, you know, we are, um, we have a high a high cost in terms of um, the products that we make because these materials tend to be quite expensive. And you know, if you look at let's take footwear as 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 the one to focus on because that's the lion's share of our business still. You, you know, the entire industry is built on a wholesale distribution model, and so <clears throat> you know, you you um, you look at a, a profit and loss statement, an income statement for a public shoe company. And you'll see that they make, you know, something like 40 or 45% gross margin. Um, and, and what that means is uh, they make a product for, let's make up a number, 10 bucks. 
they sell it for let's call it you know they call it j- just under just under 20 bucks but what the consumer pays is 40 bucks because the retailer's got to get their piece too and so um and so that's the way the, the whole industry is built now what we do is we might actually you know do something like 20 bucks as our cost structure and the consumer still pays 40 bucks. And because we cut out that retailer, we're able to deliver so much of the value that we we store in materials and the innovation and manufacturing process, the consumer gets so much more value out of that. Because you're direct to consumer, the full stack that we were talking about before that's right. the vertical and so, integration. And that's the key trade-off that we've elected to make is that we we take longer to innovate our materials they're a longer, you know, sometimes they're a longer lead time because they're, you know, uh, we're shearing the back of a sheep or we're um, using a tree that, you know, th- these kinds of processes take a long time. And and then we connect that they're more expensive. And then we connect that though to a distribution model, which allows us to, to price it at, at a wonderful value for consumers so that um, we just cut out the fat in the value chain. And so we're- That's you know, interesting. Look, so we're not I, I can imagine- fat. We're not going to grow as fast as a result of that, but that's we think that's a more sustainable, durable model, I should say, for the long term. Yeah, and I'm imagining somebody like Zappos, for example, has, has became really well known for customer service. But at the end of the day, they must have had an unbelievably high number of SKUs they'd have to deal with. And then even if you're sending the shoes or materials back to the uh, people that made them, you still have to manage that process. But if you have the entire stack and you have returns come back, I'm guessing you could start to do some interesting things like with those returns, maybe you donate them, maybe you resell them at a lower price. I mean, there's all sorts of things I would guess that you could do when you own the full stack the way that you do. Yeah, and we're, we're constantly evolving what we do there. We have a program with Souls for Soul to donate the ones we can't resell and a whole bunch of different things. But yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it's not to say that our business is not complex because we've taken on the role of, of product innovator, marketer, and retailer, uh, so um, an e-commerce company. So, you know, it's, 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 we're trying to be good at all three of those things, very challenging, but, um, but that's, it does simplify things on that retail end from what you described at Zappos, which is an incredibly complex uh, warehouse operation and whatnot. Well, for the last roughly 10 minutes of the show here, I'd love to move over to the world of finance a bit, and also corporate structure. You talked about being a certified B corporation. Could you talk just a bit more about what it means and pragmatically what it means as well? Yeah, we've, we've enshrined our company as a public benefit corporation, which is a, a, a legal structure. Ours is in Delaware. And we've named environmental conservation as our specific pen, public benefit, which is now in, in, in equal standing to our fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. So we, we both have an obligation and a liability to protect the environment based on the way we're chartered. So that's, that's something that's very important as an underpinning. And, and, and look, any CEO can come in and kind of make some decisions for a business and say that what's good for the environment is good for our business. And generally, there's legal protections around that. What this chartering does for us is 
if Tim and I are no longer with this business, the next person who takes over also has that obligation. So we've truly put this in for generations of, of leadership in our company. And so that that's a really important aspect for us. And we take that ESG role very seriously and extend it beyond the environment to be much more of a, of a stakeholder responsibility. And, and what that means to us, to put as simply as I can put it is, when we make an impact on the world that has some negative consequences, we need to pay for that. And we need to pay for it in the way we invest in our people and the environment, et cetera. Well, one of the things I'm curious about is when I join a board of directors, this is one of the things that I've, I've learned uh, over time is you're responsible, you're a fiduciary to all the shareholders of the company, whether it's different classes of stock, but it is the shareholders at the end of the day. And if I'm not doing that, then somebody could bring a suit against me. So to a certain extent, you have the protection if you're showing like you're you're taking care of the shareholders. Is the purpose or the, the practice of a certified B Corp or a public benefit corp that you have more legal protections if you're prioritizing these things, which kind of limit how much you need to worry about liability to the existing shareholders? Or is it possible that somebody could bring suit and say, hey, you, you have not considered environmental stuff a lot. You said you were going to do it. Is it really more of a protection that allows you to do that? Or does it actually have an obligation that you need to do that? And if you don't, then you could get sued. It's both. You just you said it very well. It's both. We've exposed ourselves to liability and also some, some legal protections at the same time. That's interesting. And I'm guessing that a lot of that case law is getting written right now in terms of whether companies that have gone down the public benefit corp have actually taken enough of it into very, account. Have you, have you looked at that early. or thought of that? Or Very early. Um, you know, um, Lemonade and Vital Farms are two companies that are public benefit corporations that recently went public. Um, so there's there's some there's some kind of new precedent there. Um, I, I actually co-authored a um, an op-ed in the New York Times with Chief Justice Leo Strine from the Delaware Court of Chancellery Court. Um, he was a former Chief Justice, I should say, um, but he he was responsible for for writing a lot of the precedent here um, uh, on what's going on, and 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 his views uh, are helping to shape mine a bit in terms of what what happens going forward but yeah it's a bit of an unknown unknown territory but but i i'm committed to the fact that i think this is um this is a way that can work and it's a way that can that can help to uh have the private sector alleviate some of the ills that have happened in our society as a result of of verging on unfettered capitalism and i'm, I'm a capitalist um tried and true and believe in free enterprise and market-based powers to lift people out of poverty and do amazing things. But I, I also believe that unfettered capitalism is, is not something that any society should, should aspire to. And I think in some ways, um, in some ways over the past decades, we've tilted a little too far in that direction. Well, I'm curious, leading into the other parts of financing, you've raised, I believe about $200 million to date including a round that you closed of about $100 million in October this year from some really big names, Tiger Global, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, and then some great earlier stage names like Maveron, Mark Vidon, uh, Low Ventures, and others. How do the conversations go with them when you talk and they realize that you're a public benefit corporation? It's been 
kind of a non-issue. And I think that the world of investing and particularly the, um, I shouldn't say narrow to single anyone out, you know, early stage and now these public company investors, you know, we have, we have a, you know, you, you named a few, but Franklin Templeton, Fidelity, uh, Bailey Gifford, huge, huge asset managers. I think they all realize that the companies in this next generation that are going to be built, that are brands, are going to have to stand for something beyond just making money. Uh, and they're going to have to stand for something that that particularly millennial and Gen Z consumers uh, align with. So the next generation of brands that are built are going to they're going to have to have consumers like Gen Z and millennial consumers that align with their values. Those are the customers that will, will, will at the end of the day, create profit. And so there, there's a mutual beneficial relationship, mutually beneficial relationship between how these investors are looking at companies that are purpose-driven and, and also making a profit. And hopefully they believe both those things, which we do. And, and I think there, there's an acknowledgement of that. And so it's not as much of an issue as one might think. And I think these investors are, are attuned to the fact that this is the way the world is headed. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I will say when we first came across these close to a decade ago at Shasta Ventures, and we have invested in a couple of companies that either at the point in which we invested or after we invested, uh, converted into public benefit cor corporations, we found that actually at, at worst, it's kind of been a net neutral. And in a lot of cases, especially where you have large communities that you want to engage with a company, it's actually been a net positive. And it'll be really interesting to see how the, the case law is written in, in the coming decade. I think around a lot of companies, they become public and they become quite significant companies. Uh, do, you, do you happen to know, because I, I don't know offhand, uh, what the largest public um, uh, publicly offered, publicly traded public benefit corporation is that's out there today? It could be Natura. Um, it could be Natura, a Brazilian skincare company. Um, and, and Danone has a, now a portion of their business that is, but I don't think the full thing is traded. Um, so the, it could be Natura, it could be the biggest. Yeah, so you're probably going to be blazing new ground here, which will be pretty exciting in the coming years. I hope so. And, I hope so. And, and down, down, those, down that front, uh, I've noticed that uh, in the press, you've, you've talked about so-called SPACs, these special purpose acquisition companies, where also known as blank check companies, where they go public, they raise money, and then they seek a company that is not yet public, usually, uh, to acquire, and then it's effectively a way of becoming IPO or becoming a public company. Curious how you're you're thinking about those options right now, and your thoughts on SPACs in general. Yeah, I, I think they could be good for certain businesses, um, and and I, I try never to say never on anything. Um, but but for Allbirds, you know, I guess the way I, I've been looking at this is. We're a pretty capital efficient business, and you know, two hundred million dollars. You mentioned that we've raised sounds sounds like a lot of money, and obviously it is, in any sense of the word. But um, a lot of that's in the bank. <laughs> we, we we're pretty conservative with how we how we spend money, and we have a, a real disciplined belief that we we should grow responsibly as we grow our business, um, and that means maintaining profitability, uh, and and so. <clears throat> and so um, with that context, 
you know, as I understand SPACs, which I'm no expert, um, you know, you get liquidity out of it as a, you know, founder and your other investors can get liquidity out and it's a much quicker path to the public markets. Um, but I don't see us trying to optimize for the price that we go public at or, um, or you know, how fast we go public, because I think the value that we create for the world and for our shareholders and for you know everyone else, people that work for us, is going to be um, is going to take a long time to fully fully appreciate. And so you know the steps that we take along the way are simply funding mechanisms, uh, and and you know the liquidity is going to come, so no rush there. And and I think the value uh, is going to be optimized by doing it when it's really right for the business based on you know, how big we are, how predictably we're growing, how, um, you know, how established we are in all the key markets that we want to be established in. So I'd say that takes precedence over uh, a quicker path to liquidity. And I think it's important for people to think that through uh, when they're making those decisions. And and sometimes the answer might be liquidity sounds fantastic. <laughs> so you might yeah for your business. Well, one of the things that's been kind of interesting about SPACs that I've seen over the last year is that they've actually tended to line up more with deeper tech companies that yeah. don't have immediate revenues, where you have people, public market investors, that would love to have exposure to 3D printing or space or new areas of biotech, et cetera, where they couldn't get exposure before. And people, when they invest, they they look at the projections and they understand there aren't going to be meaningful revenues for, I don't know, one, two, three, four years, et cetera. And I don't think we've seen quite as many of them around companies that have meaningful revenue and are actually good operating businesses, that those companies still seem to be pretty well suited to the, the traditional, I say that with air quotes, IPO processes and getting to somewhere where they have scale and repeatability, et cetera, is is what people are doing. Well, call me call me a cynic, but <clears throat> I tend to agree with you. I've seen a bunch of the deep tech, deep tech companies go out, and and when you have projections that are based on twenty twenty four revenues, you got a couple of years to trade on the public markets without much fundamental basis in financial reality. And those story stocks, as I would call them, have an opportunity for people to get really rich without having any real backing to them. And so, um, you know, I'd say investors beware to a certain degree. And there's obviously going to be some phenomenal winners there. And uh, I think there'll be some losers. But it'll be wild. It'll be wild to watch. It's, it's yeah. interesting as an early stage investor to watch a lot of this because sometimes companies, it's crazy. They maybe not say crazy. It's wild to watch. They kind of create their own reality over time. I think Tesla, yeah. the company we talked about before, could be considered one of those. And SpaceX, on the other hand, a company has decided to stay private. So anyways, Joey, thank, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for thank you for having me on, Rob. Great to talk to you. And for people people that want to keep up with you, where should they go to find you online? Uh, go, to, go to Allbird Stuff. Go to allbirds, allbirds.com, check out our LinkedIn. I post some stuff on Medium once in a while. Um, but yeah, uh, please, please do stay in touch and download our app. It's a sweet new app that we have for um, for iOS. So it's pretty cool. Great. Well, I'm sure people will do that. We've got to run. Follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me at Rob Cunnybeer. 
I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.